0: Well, as Christians, we have every reason to be optimistic about the future. And as Christians, we have every reason to be pessimistic about the future. (laughs) We have reason to be pessimistic because we know of the wickedness of the human heart. We know what's in our own hearts. We've seen our own selfishness. We've seen the selfishness of others. And when you put things together... My selfishness, your selfishness, other people's selfishness. It's no wonder the world we live in is like it is. Paul warns us of the difficult days to come. Second Timothy 3. Realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful and holy and loving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. If We're looking to the human heart to turn society around. There's no hope. We will be looking for a long, long time. As Christians, we have reason to be pessimistic. We've promised in the Bible of the bad times to come. But we also have reason to be optimistic as as well, not because of our attitudes, not because of our abilities, not because of our trust in mankind, but we have reason to be optimistic because of our trust in the power of God. Many of us have seen in this room what, what God has done in our own souls to transform us, to turn us from sin and despair to trust Christ and to love Him completely. As God has power over the King's heart to, to turn it wherever He will like channels of water, so He can also do so in a larger scope in society as well. Historically, whenever God has poured forth His Spirit upon a society, seen many people come to Christ in revival, it has had ripple effects through all the society as well. Study revival. And you know what I'm talking about. The Great Awakening in America, for instance, is one but of many. On top of that, we have promises in the Bible of widespread revival. Jeremiah 31 this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put My law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be My people. And they will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all will know Me, from the least to the greatest of them. This says that everybody will know Christ. That is, worldwide revival is promised here. I will be, forgive their iniquity and their sin I'll remember no more. There are prophecies of, of of worldwide peace and happiness. Maybe you remember a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest upon his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Power, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And it says here there will be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. We think about that Christmas time. What Jesus has started in seed will progress someday. It says the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So we have reason to be pessimistic. We have reason to be optimistic. And it's interesting, the book of Revelation puts both of these right side by side because we see the optimism of the end and we see the pessimism of where man takes us. You see the extent of wickedness will plunge men into despair, and you see the extent to which God goes to fully restore His creation to its rightful place. if you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Revelation, the very last book in our Bible. We are in a a four-part series. This year, this Advent season, I sought to overview the entire Bible in four messages. I'm sure, good, we have it up there. The uh, slides, the first message, I've entitled a single word, creation. That is God created the world is very good. Second was the fall, because of sin the world was corrupted. The third message last week was entitled Redemption when Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of prophecy and history, came to redeem those who believe. And my fourth message this morning is entitled Restoration. the The, the idea there is that he, what he's begun in redemption, he'll complete in the restoration. He'll bring all of history to conclusion, all bowing before. Christ. It's the story of the Bible, story of the universe. God created a good world, but we messed it up. So God came into the world to redeem the world. And what God has begun, He will bring it to completion with the new heavens and the new earth in the restoration. The story of the world is the story of each of us. God created us in, our own, in His image. We've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Christ came to redeem us from our sins, and He who began a good work in you will be perfected until the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians one six, And that's what my message is about today. That, that the work that God has begun in this world through the coming of Jesus at Christmas time will be completed. He will restore the creation to perfection. And that's good news for us. Now, one of the things also I want to comment about these four words... They do describe the redemptive storyline of the Bible starting right from the creation and the fall, redemption and restoration, but there's quite a bit of overlap in them as well. And by that I mean this, even though the creation took place technically in the first two chapters of Genesis, there are there reminders of the fact that God is creator throughout all the Bible. And though the fall took place in Genesis 3 and its repercussions go all the way through until the end of Revelation, Still, there's just even there. There's there's, there's hope, even even in the fall. There's there's hope in the Old Testament about a coming Messiah, and, and even the redemption, which is in the latter part of the New Testament, when when Christ comes and redeems us. Even there is still a a hope to come. So they all like they all overlap. It's not just a segmented chop it up, but it is the big theme of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. This morning we're going to focus on restoration and the. The one Bible that, that tells of the restoration in as great a detail as no other Bible is the book of Revelation. And we're going to survey this whole book as we've done in this series, taking, taking big swaps rather than just working verse by verse through the Scriptures, which we normally do. We've been taking big swaths of Scripture. We're going to take all of Revelation today. Our gaze is on the last two chapters That's where we're going. Um, in, in these messages, I have gone slow at first and then sped up. Today I'm going to go fast and then slow down. When we finally get to our restoration. So, let's begin the book of Revelation. Chapter 1, verse 19 is the outline of the book of Revelation. The Apostle John is listening to an angel. He says, Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. The things which he saw basically include chapter 1. He saw the Son of Man clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet and girded across a golden sash in the middle of seven golden lampstands. That's what he saw. The things that are, are chapters 2 and 3, the letters to the different churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia. Those were churches at the time. He wrote letters to warn them and encourage them in appropriate ways. And the things which will take place after these things is Revelation 4 through Revelation chapter 22, which is the rest of the book. So let's turn to chapter 4. We see the worship of God in heaven. I think this is a good place for us to start. So we think of the restoration. Let's just start start here. There are five times in which praise emanates from the four living creatures and from the 24 elders and from the myriads and myriads of angels and even the very last one is all creation. Every created thing. Worshiping God. Let's just look what they say. Chapter 4, verse 8. The four living creatures, each one having six wings, are full of eyes in front and behind, around and within. And day and night, they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Speaks of His goodness. Speaks of His greatness. Speaks of His endurance. That He is the God who is holy and pure and endures for all time. We see the 24 elders saying in verse 11, Worthy are You, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things, and because of Your will, they existed and were created. We see what we saw last week in chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. We see the the 24 elders falling down before the Lamb. They say, Worthy are You to take the book and to break its seals, For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. Similar to chapter 4, verse 11 and just this theme about how He's worthy. He's worthy. Where's the difference? In chapter 4, verse 11, worthy are you because you created everything. In chapter 5, verse 9 and 10, worthy are you because you redeemed people. It's a little bit different flavor, but still the same thing that God is worthy of our worship. Or chapter 5, verse 12. We see living creatures around the throne, myriads and myriads of angels saying in a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And again, we see this Lamb who's worthy. Why? Because he died and he was slain for our sins. And then, verse 13. Every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, this is all of creation, worshipping our God, to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, that's to Jesus, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. There, There's a picture right at the start of the book of Revelation. The worthy one, the Lord, the sovereign over all universe, front and center, worshipped by all of His creation as the worthy, holy, all glory and dominion forever, God. And I just say the magnitude of this worship ought to instruct our own because, catch this, we worship the same God the same One who is lifted high by all of creation with a loud voice is the same One that we worship. We worship Jesus and His Father upon the thrones. And I just say this, your worship should be like that of heavenly worship. Is it? Stephen, as you think about your worship, whether it's singing in church, what's your devotions at home, once you walk through the highways of life, Think of heaven and the worship and say, God, that's, that's how I want to worship You. That's how I am worshiping You. The only difference for us is we don't see God in all His reality like they did. But yeah, He's still the same God. The One from whom men hide their face. So here's the big question. Though. Why does the book of Revelation start like this? It's a question I asked this week. Why start with this anthem of praise in chapters 4 and 5? Well, I think it's to show His dominion. This book is all about how God is coming back to lay His claim on planet Earth. He's going to rightly restore His sovereign rule and He has the power to do so. In fact, scattered throughout Revelation, there are several times in which it just speaks about how how great and glorious God is, how He's the King and He's the Sovereign One He's coming back. Just kind of like interludes right along the way because I think it's one of the themes. Christ is coming back to take His earth back. That that the fall is messed up, that the work that begun in redemption is going to be completed in restoration. And He has the power and the authority to do so. But, He's got to resolve one thing first. Before He takes power of the earth, He's got to deal with the rebellion of man. In order to restore the earth to perfection, to a pure earth, it must be cleansed. It must have all wickedness removed from it. Now I'd love just to skip to chapter twenty-one and twenty-two, but I don't think that we we get the feel that all of Revelation does. Revelation doesn't skip it. Rather, it puts forth really here's the destruction of the earth and the destruction of the rebels within it. And I think what's happening in much of Revelation is like this you buy an antique chair and you want to fix it up, what do you do first? You strip it bare. You strip it clean. You take the paint off. You take the paint remover and move it off. Or you take the finish and you remove it off and you strip it down to the bare wood and then you apply the finish. And that's what God is doing in Revelation. He's stripping down the earth so then He can rebuild it again in His restorative work. So what He's doing. He's got to strip away the earth. And He does this through a series of judgments. First, there are the seals and then the trumpets and then the bowls. The seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. And as each of these judgments unfold, they just increase in, in power and they increase in destruction. That, that first they're the seals, they're not so bad. And then come the trumpets, which are worse. And then come the bowls, which are by far the worst. And by the time the last bowl is poured out, we'll get to that, we'll see it. it they say, it's finished. It's all done. The earth has been stripped. It's been burned. It's been purged. It's ready to be made anew again. And let me remind you, as we just go through these, we're going to go through these really fast, that this is reality. This is what will take place in the future with the seals and the trumpets of the bulls. Here we go. Seals, chapter 6, verse 1. And then I saw when a lamb broke one of the seven seals, I heard one of the four living creatures saying as with a voice of thunder, Come, and I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and went out, he went out conquering and to conquer. First seal opens with a man on a war path. It's a harbinger of things to come. The second seal comes in verse 3. He broke the second seal. And I heard a second living creature saying, Come, and another, a red horse went out. And to him who sat on it was granted to take peace from the earth and that men would slay one another. And a great sword was given to him. Here we see war upon the earth. Third seal. When he broke it, verse 5, I heard the third living creature saying, Come, and I looked and behold a black horse. And he was sat on it and had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. The idea here is that the food is scarce and food is expensive and there's a famine in the land is the idea here. So we got, we got war, we got, we got famine, and here with the fourth seal, we're going to see death coming about. Verse 7, When the Lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come, and I looked, and behold, an ashen horse. And he who sat on it had a name, Death and Hades, and was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. War, famine, death. Just starting to come. Jesus called these in Matthew chapter 24, these very same signs, He called them the beginning of birth pains, The beginning to reform and restore the earth to where it should be. That's how God's purifying process begins. And during this time, the earth is an awful place to live. In the fifth seal, we see the agony of the martyrs. They're under the throne. As it says in verse 10, Actually, he says in verse 9, I may just read it, When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the Word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. These were people who who healed, who, who kept to their loyalty to Jesus Christ and were killed as a result of their faith. Which happens here in the end times often. And they cried out with a loud voice, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will You refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Basically, they're saying, let justice prevail. These people have killed us for your cause, O oh God. When are you going to get back at them? Vengeance is yours. That's what you say. You will repay. So when are you going to repay them? And God says, it was given each one of them a white robe, So they were told they should rest a little while longer. Basically, God said this, just wait. You just wait until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been to be completed, also. So you know, I got this number. I got this list of martyrs out there, and the list isn't full yet. You just wait till that list is full, and then I'll avenge your blood. You just, you just see, there even this the, the focused attempt, probably upon the household of God first, and then upon the world. In chapter in verse twelve, then we see the sixth seal. It says, I looked. And He broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair and the whole moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it scrolled up and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. You just see God shaking the earth. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man. It's like everybody on the earth. They hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains and they said to the mountains... And the rocks fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come and who is able to stand? In other words, people want to die. People want to be crushed to death because being crushed to death is better than facing the wrath of the One who sits on the throne and the wrath of the Lamb. You say, how could it be so bad? Well, verse 17 This is why it's so bad Is the great day of the wrath has come. God's been patient with the world ever since the fall. But there's, there's a day when His patience runs out. It's called the day of His wrath. He didn't destroy Adam and Eve on the day when they sinned. He didn't destroy Israel when they sinned. He's let them go. He was with patience. God was patient. And since the Messiah has come, many people have continued in the rebellion, and God has continued in His patience as well. Many refuse to believe in the Son. Many refuse to trust Him. And as they refuse to place their trust in Him, God says the day is done. The wrath is being poured out. And instead of trusting Him, they've taken the stand against the Lord and His Anointed. And God says, "You want to fight me? Okay, here's your time." And, and it's all a process to to. Um, To refine and strip away the earth before the restoration comes. And the idea of Revelation 6 through 20 is that His wrath came. His wrath is coming. And it's coming to destroy. It's coming to purge. It's coming to cleanse. It's coming to recreate. It's coming to restore. Those are the the seals. Then we see the trumpets. They come in chapter 8. We'll skip chapter 7. We'll go to chapter 8. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. There's the last seal the calm before the storm. And then comes the trumpet judgments. Look at verse 6. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. And when they blow these trumpets, there is disaster that comes upon the earth. Let's just catch a flavor of what they're like. The first sounded, verse 7, and there came... Hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. So there's the first trumpet, just burning of the earth. Verse 8, the second angel sounded. There was something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. So here we're seeing creatures destroyed, ships destroyed as the destruction is reaching into the sea. A third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and the springs of water, and the name of the star was called Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. So polluting the water source. People are dying. All over the earth. The fourth angel, verse 12, sounded, and a third of the sun, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were struck, so the third of them would be darkened, and that day would not shine for a third of it in the night in the same way. So darkness is coming, the sun is being destroyed, the moon is being destroyed, just coming upon the earth. Trees, creatures, sea, water, sun, things on earth are crumbling. Because God's just stripping the earth bare before He's going to restore it again. And the fifth and sixth trumpets are no better. We're not going to read them, they take almost all of chapter nine. But the fifth angel speaks about the great torture that comes upon the earth for five months. People wanted to die, but couldn't. They sought for death, but couldn't get it. So bad. The sixth trumpet killed off a third of mankind. Look at chapter 9, verse 18. A third of mankind was killed by these plagues, and fire and smoke and brimstone was preceded out of their mouths. It's not a good thing to be on the earth at that time. The seventh trumpet comes in chapter 11, verse 15. When the seventh angel sounded, there were loud voices in heaven saying, and here's one of those, those plots i we talking about the kingdom. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. Here it is. God coming back to reign upon His earth. First, destroying it completely. It's what the Revelation is all about. It's about restoring the earth to its rightful King, King Jesus. Purging it before the restoration. We're going to skip ahead. We're going faster. Revelation chapter 16, where the bulls come. These bowls are worse than the seals. These bowls are worse than the trumpets. Again, there are seven of them. Chapter 16, verse 1, And then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. These are short, so we can read some of them. Verse 2, The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and he became a loathsome, and malignant sore on people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. Verse 3, the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became blood like that of a dead man and every living thing in the sea died. So where is the water? Can we just go to here? Can we do that? Um, Where first we had a third of the sea and now I've got everything in the sea is dead. And then verse 4, the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of the waters, and they became blood. And and I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judge these things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets. And here the martyrs are finally being avenged. And you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, they're the martyrs, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments, vindicating those who killed the martyrs. The fourth bowl, verse 8: The fourth angel pulled out his bowl upon the sun. And it was given to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with fierce heat. And they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues. And they did not repent so as to give Him glory. It says in the Scriptures, Romans 2, 4, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. But here even it's the severity and the wrath of God which ought to lead to repentance. And there's none of that here. God is scorching them and they're not even crying for mercy. They're blaspheming and shaking their fists at God. So unnatural in many ways, but such is the rebellion of man that God is squashing out. Verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl and the throne of the beast and the kingdom became darkened and they gnawed their tongues because of pain, yet they didn't repent. Instead, they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and they did not repent of their deeds. God's just destroying them. The sixth angel poured out his bowl, verse 12, on the great river the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings of the east. Finally, the seventh bowl comes in verse 7. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done! There's the judgment purifying. And it's not totally done because he deals with Babylon in chapters 17 and 18. But the idea here is that all the wrath is poured out. It's coming. It's so completed. He is, he is refining. He's cleaning. He's burning up the earth so He can create anew. And then comes in chapter 19, Jesus coming in victory. Some years ago, we walked through that chapter closely, verse by verse. It's the coming Christ who came um, as the conqueror, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Finally, we see the final judgment seat in chapter 20, verses 11 and following. These are worthy to read as well. Verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne and Him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. In other words, that's everybody who's ever died comes to stand, resurrected, come to stand before the Lord. These books are opened. So they're going to judge people. Uh, let's see, where was I? Let's see, the Dead. Here it is, verse 13. And they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. That's the second death. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's the end of the world. That's the end of the wicked right there. And Jesus said there's weeping and gnashing of teeth there. He said the worm never dies there. He said it's a terrible place to be. Eternal punishment. As much as heaven is a place of eternal joy, right here is the great divide between the sheep and the goats. And it's finally done at that point. And then, now, the earth has been purged. It can be restored. And that's what we see coming the restoration. We'll spend the rest of our time here just slowly working through Twenty one, mostly, and then some of twenty two. Then John writes, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there's no longer any sea. And I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And when you get to this point in the book of Revelation... He kind of like breathe a big sigh of relief and go, whew. you maybe say, finally. Or you maybe say, at last. Finally, we get to see this new heavens and this new earth. Finally, we are free from sin. and, And all of its devastating responses, the Negro spiritual puts it, free at last. Free at last. I thank God I'm free at last. That's what the earth is saying. That's what the, the, the cry of the earth is the song of creation. We are free at last. Paul said, Romans 8, 19, the anxious longing for creation awaits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. It's no accident that the final judgment is there to show who the wicked are and who are those who place their trust in Christ and who are the sons of God and whose name are in the book of life. And as soon as those are revealed, that's the anxious longing of creation is for that day. And the creation knows that it's fresh; it's going to be new, created anew. The creation is free; it's done with the curse; it's done with the mourning and crying and pain and sorrow and death, like verse four says. I've got a <coughs> excuse me. I've got a book here: children's stories by J.C. Ryle. Um, It's a great book. Grandparents, maybe get this for your grandchildren. We don't have a lot of grandparents here. (laughs) Why do I say that? Parents, get this for your children. Um, I know that uh, Yvonne has read this out loud to our kids. Uh, It's a great... It's basically messages. They're messages to children, what J.C. Ryle wrote. And uh, he's got one here on Revelation 21, verse 4. This verse that says... And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death, nor will there be any mourning or crying or pain, the first things have passed away. And he opens his message. It's very simple. And parents, that means you will like it as well. He says, I should like you to read the Bible text from Revelation twice over. I'm going to tell you something which I hope will make you remember that text as long as you live. I'm going to tell you about three places of which the Bible says a great deal. It doesn't matter what we know about some places, but it matters a whole lot to know something about the three places of which I'm going to speak. First, there's a place where there's a great deal of crying. Second, there's a place where there is nothing else but crying. And third, there's a place where there is no crying at all. Okay, kids, let's see if you understand this. What is the first place where there is a great deal of crying? Where might that be? Yes, Nathan? That's earth. Why is there a great deal of crying here? Sin is here. And uh, difficulties and hardships and trials and poverty and pain and death and weakness and relational problems, emotional problems, spiritual problems, conflicts, strife, envy, sorrows. There's a lot of, lot of crying here. Alright, second, there's a place where there's nothing else but Crying. Do you know where that is? Yes, Caleb. Hell. Right, where Jesus said there's weeping and gnashing of teeth forever. And then there's a third place where well, there's no crying at all. What's that referring to? Yes, uh, Rachel. What? Heaven. Good job. See how easy and understandable it is, parents? Go help. And then he goes on to talk about heaven. So I'm immediately jumping to his third point. He talks about earth. He talks about hell. And he talks about heaven. Here's what he says about heaven. What is this place where there's no crying at all? Why, it is heaven. It is the place people go to when they are dead if they have believed in Jesus. There is joy and there all is joy and happiness. There no tears are shed. Their sorrow, pain, sickness, and death can never enter in. There's no crying there because there's nothing that causes grief. Dear children, there'll be no more lessons in heaven. That's a good spot for an amen, kids. Let's try that again. All right, you ready? Dear children, there'll be no more lessons in heaven. All will be learned. (laughs) The school will be closed. There'll be... (laughs) Yes, okay, that's... Okay, you guys can respond at this point, okay? Okay, pretend we're in a black church here, okay? We need, we need some spontaneous here. Here we go. Um, let's see. Yeah, here, The school be closed. Yeah, there will be no need for rules or discipline. There will be eternal holiday. <laughs> Good job. Good job. Okay, men, maybe you want, want this. There will be no more work in heaven. Men will no longer need to labor for bread. The head will no longer have an ache with its sinking. The hands will no longer be stiff and sore from hard work. There'll be eternal rest for the people of God. And you know what? Why don't we just—that's—that's that's good. Why don't we just keep the spirit, if you want? Because he's going to go through some more things that aren't there. If you want, feel like, Amen. If a problem hits you, particularly, you say Amen, because this is the new creation we're looking for. There'll be no sickness in heaven. Pain and disease and weakness and death will not be known. The people who dwell there shall no more say, I am sick. They will all be well. There will be nothing but health and strength forevermore. There will be no sin in heaven. There will be no bad tempers. No unkind words. No spiteful actions. The great tempter the devil will not be allowed to come in and spoil the happiness. There shall be nothing but holiness and love forevermore and best of all. The Lord Jesus Christ Himself will be in the midst of heaven. His people shall at last see Him face to face, and He will never leave his presence and will never leave His presence. He shall gather his lambs into His arms and wipe away all tears from all eyes. Where He is will be fullness of joy at the right hand shall be pleasures forevermore. Amen. Amen. That's the place where there's no more, no more crying. It's a place reserved for those who believe in Christ. Who have repented of their sins. Who have cried out to God, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Those are the people who are in that place. When Jesus said, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. He had this place in mind in John 3.16. He had the place where there would be no crying, everlasting life to the full. And the treasure here, if we just start picking out some of these verses in verse 3, is that God will be among us. Verse 3, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. It's one of the themes of Revelation, one of the themes of the Bible, actually, is that God is going to change the world and make it right so that he will be with us, because that's a big treasure of the entire thing it whispers back to the Garden of Eden when God used to walk in the garden with Adam and Eve and he used to be with them. But sin has caused the separation between us and God. And when God purges the sin, no more separation. But God is with us and He will dwell among us. And that's good news that God will be among us. You know, we tasted it at Christmas time, the incarnation, John 1. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us, He tented among us, He was with us, but He was with us only for a little bit. Then He went back. But this time, He's going to tabernacle with us. He's going to be with us forever. And He's not going back. He is not leaving. He's going to be permanent dwelling here among us. No more going back. No more going back to heaven because heaven has arrived. God will have brought heaven to us. And really, that's the point of verse 1. He saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there's no longer any sea. Everything that the prophets long for will come to pass in that day. Psalm 102, of old, O Lord, you founded the earth and the heavens are the works of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure and like them all will wear out like a garment, like clothing, you will change them and they will be changed. Now, one of the things that theologians wrestle with here, here at this point is just what does it mean for the heaven and earth to pass away does it mean that the whole earth is going to be burned up in a in a bundle of fire and then cast far away and all the universe and God's going to re, going to create a new universe, a second universe, as you will? Or does it mean, I think that that I've been arguing that I think it's going to be a new heavens and an earth is a is is an indication of the transformation of the whole universe. Not necessarily a recreation of the whole universe. The word here translates new as in a new heaven, new earth. It doesn't talk about new so much as opposed to old, but new it speaks in, in terms of quality and in terms of character. That's what it's talking about here. Just like 2 Corinthians 5.17, same words. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. It's the same thing here. It's a new heaven and a new earth like we're a new creation in Christ. The first heaven has passed away. You see, it's not that when we come to faith in Christ that, that He just He dumps us. He makes us new. He makes us better. He makes us revived. He doesn't wipe us out and put us into dust and then raise up a new Steve. As much as that would be good. He will do that someday in the resurrection, the restoration, but but. When we come to Christ, He just changes us and transforms us, redeems us using the same language here. And I do believe a similar thing will take place on the earth. It's the point of the seals and the bowls and the trumpets. They're destroying the old. They're stripping it away that God might create, purge the sin and come with the new. Stripping it down that God might bring a, a renewed state of pristine purity. That's what He's looking at doing. Randy Alcorn writes, by the way, it's what Randy Alcorn argues in his book, Heaven, it's the best book on heaven I know of. Um, I'm pretty sure it's in the library or somebody has it loaned out at their, their house maybe, but this is a great book on heaven. Um, he read a ton of books, did a ton of research, and actually... Um, might challenge your thinking a little bit about heaven's like. Because I even want to challenge it here. It's, it's more earthy than you think. Oftentimes we think of heaven and we think about just floating in space someplace. But when it describes very earthy, we're going to talk about a new Jerusalem coming down. We have, we have people around. We, it's, it's very earthy, but it's a perfect earth instead. But Randy Alcorn says this, he says, When Christ returns, God's agenda is not to destroy everything and start over, but to restore everything the perfection of creation once lost will be fully gained and then some. Because it won't be ever destroyed ever more. It's the restoration. He's going to restore everything. That's the idea here. And the point is here is that everything will be new. Look at verse 5. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Now, I remember hearing James McDonald preach a message about this text. And you know what? I'm just going to steal his illustration straight for it. This isn't me. OK, this is him. So it's his joke, but it may say his joke, his illustrations and his. So give it all all credit to him. But he talked about the implication about being new. He pictured two people. And if I had my mobile mic, I'd act it out. Right. Two people kind of walking along. And you know how when people greet each other, especially teenagers, what do they say? Hey, what's new? And the other guy goes back, he says, everything. It's a stupid question, really, to ask in in uh, in the new heavens and new earth. Because everything is new. Because that's what it says. You sits on the throne, behold, I'm making all things new. You walk up to somebody and you happen to notice their the clothes they're wearing. Right? Hey, Phil, you got a nice sweater on. Is, is that new? And Phil says, Yep. <laughs> Or you, you might you might, you might look, you know, I got my hair cut on, let's see, yesterday, no, today, Friday probably. I can't remember when Yvonne cut my hair. But you say, hey, you come up to Steve. Steve, is that, is that a new haircut? You say, yep, it's new. Or, you know, someone asks you about your work. You say, hey, how, how's, how's your work going? It's a common question. Well, how's your work going? It's great. i got a new job. And uh, it's, just, it's just everything's new in this job. A return from worship. Someday you've been there a million times before. Eternity, and someone says, "Oh, how was worship?" He says, it was "Different. It was great. It it was new. The idea there is, it's fresh. It's just it's just coming in. You guys ever like me, like you know, come Sunday and you're just like, okay, let's go through a routine. We got this thing figured out. But in heaven, worship, worship is going to be new all the time. Someone asks you what your dinner was like that evening." You know, oh, it's good. I've been eating at the table of the Lord for thousands of years. And yet food tonight was different. It was new. A new recipe was tried. I loved it. It was wonderful. Here's this. You always have the feeling that everything is new in heaven. You say, how can that be? I mean, how can it, is it all just continuing? I don't know how it's going to be, but it's all going to feel new, probably, is, is the idea. And it's going to be new. And I got an illustration of that yesterday. And you guys, I didn't talk to you about this, but I'm, I'm sure it's okay. I was in my office studying and, and writing yesterday, and I hear some clamoring out in the garage. And these guys are climbing up the ladder into the attic and they come down, and actually when I, there's a, they come down, we got this basketball hoop in our garage, this big plastic bag, and it kind of dumped in the hoop and kind of got caught there, and so I got it, and it's big bag. I mean, it's a, whatever, those big 55-gallon, I don't know how, how big they are. And I got it, and it's heavy, and you know what it's filled with? What's it filled with, guys? Beanie babies and and stuffed animals, okay? Now, these animals, for some reason, I, I'm not sure exactly how, I think mom is, is the culprit is that they find themselves in this big plastic bag always going up to the attic and the kids are always retrieving them and they're always going back up and they're always coming back down and they're always going back up. I don't know how old these things are. I think they're pretty old. But you know what? They're new. They come fresh every time. And the kids now have all these... I saw downstairs, have all these stuffed animals all over the place and they're playing with them. It just There's a newness. There's a freshness and a vitality be that The quality of our lives will just be new. And we have so much to look forward to in heaven because tomorrow is a new day. Just continuing looking on. That's why Paul says in Romans, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What we suffer today, we can't even compare with how great that is going to be in the new heavens and the new earth when all is restored, as John Newton said, When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. There's just 10,000 years. There's there's no boredom there. It's all encouraging, it's all fresh. And the good thing about heaven is it's totally free. It doesn't cost us a cent to get there. Look at verse 6. And then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. It's the one who's thirsty and comes look over in chapter 22. We're going to just jump there just a little bit because it's the same theme. 22 verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who hears say, come and let the one who is thirsty, come and let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. You know, you get a Pepsi or Coke or something, it's going to set you back 50 cents a dollar or whatever. But to get the water of life costs you Nothing. You just need to turn from your sin and trust and embrace Jesus. And it is yours. That's how we get there. We get there not by works of righteousness, which we do, but we get there according to His mercy. And, and, and when we're there, it's, it's almost like we are His guests. That He has prepared this, this lavish place for us that has cost us nothing. We've not prepared it. He's made it all for us. So, another illustration. This past summer, we took our vacation, our annual vacation to California to visit Avon's folks. And we're driving back three days. And our plan, we got it mapped out. We did it two years ago. It worked out great. First night, drive, whatever, 15 hours, land in Salt Lake City at, at dusk. And then we go on to western Nebraska, and then we come home. And we're done in three days, two stops. We got our campgrounds all set out. So we got that. Um, Salt Lake City was great. And then as we're driving into western Nebraska last year during the summertime, it's like pouring rain as we are driving along. Now, we're camping, okay? So. Rain and camping doesn't go so well. So we're in western Nebraska thinking about, oh, what should we do? We even stopped at a gas station, got some Wi-Fi checked on the weather and it's, it's just right there. And so we just said, well, well, let, let's try this. And so I have my my sister's mother-in-law lives in Lincoln, Nebraska, and so, which is on down beyond Lake Ogallala where we were going to be. And um, so we're in the rain and I'm on the phone saying, Hi, Mary, this is Steve Brandon. Kind of like you remember me. Uh, I've never called you on the phone before, but I'm calling you now. <laughs> and, and I just explained the situation. I said, boy, we have a vacation in California. Their family are trying to get back in three days. And here's this rain and we don't want to. Can I ask you a favor? Can we just, can we just maybe stop by your house? And uh, we're camping. So we just, you know, can sit out, out in your your um, driveway would be fine or out in the street, wherever, you know, we're we're because we, we, we're in our van in our trailer and we're totally self-contained and that would work out just fine. We've looked the weather. We, the weather should be done by the time we're in Lincoln. Um, you know, we're probably rolling about midnight or so. Is that, is that okay? Um, you sure? And Mary said, we'd be delighted to have you. So, I, I've never been to her house before. Had no idea what to expect. I mean, she, she's she's a great woman, okay? By the way, she's very loving and compassionate um, and that's, I kind of expected that from her that she would extend us grace, but I, I had no idea what to expect their house. I'm thinking, you know, uh, a modest house, suburbia, America, you know, maybe two car garage and stuff like that. When well, we get there and their house sits on maybe about five acres, big house, about 150 feet of driveway. I think to get up there, kind of a loop around the driveway. I, I can't quite remember. I think maybe four car garage. I had no idea that their house was like this, um, Dick, her husband, has been very successful in electrical trade. Um, We looked looked like they had a swimming pool uh, in the backyard, inside tall ceilings, and to make they had a pool table in the basement. (laughs) It was like it was like heaven on earth. So we get there, and it's it's um, it's like uh, midnight. And uh, Dick stayed up, led us inside, said, hey, we're welcome to sleep inside. So we got the kids all, all, all going. all and I, we slept in the trailer because we like it there. We're all, we're all set. But we get up in the morning and Mary just lavishes her grace upon us. She's like, i got to go to work, but here, help yourself to anything. She made some fresh bread for us for breakfast. She pulled out, And, and then she said, oh, there's a swimming pool there. Here, let me just pull the cover away. And so there's kind of some... Uh, how to do that with the switch and pulled the cover away and said, yeah, just take a swim if you want to. You can do that. And and she's got grandchildren, so she's got grandchildren toys all around. And so we did. We just spent a, a lazy morning as she went off to work. We were we were roughing it. <laughs> so we had a, a family swim together, which is nice. We ate uh, the food that was there. We made sure that we cleaned up all, all nice. The kids play with the toys. I even got my pool game in. That was really that was really a wonderful time. It was a taste of heaven. And I think the thing that made it taste like heaven is it was totally unexpected and nice. Um, it was clean and pristine. They don't have kids around to mess up everything with the, the clutter. And, um, you know, we were, we were there. It cost us nothing, totally free. We did respond just with a note in kind and, and, and really bonded our relationship with them in many ways as they served us in this way. But far better than any campground or luxury hotel we could have ever purchased with money. And it was entirely just graciously given to us. And that's what the restoration is going to be like. For the one who thirsts, verse 6, we're going to be given from the spring of the water of life without cost. It's just been given to us. Well, verse 7, we see of the relationship with God and with us. and It just gets better. He who overcomes will inherit these things. And by the way, through Revelation, as he overcomes. The overcomer is often in Revelation. But the one who overcomes, right? The one who keeps his faith until the end. The one who endures. I will be his God and he will be my son. I remember studying this passage about a year ago. And just working on memorizing Revelation 21. Getting through here. And So I'm working on verse 7. Just kind of coming up to it. And these words just stunned me. He overcomes will inherit these things and I will be as God and He will be my Son. The Son is reserved for Jesus. How is it that I am I'm the Son? Like a, a special Son of God. How How can that be? And I just say that is grace. That is relationship. It's incredible that we, by faith in Jesus Christ, become a child of God. We aren't aliens. We aren't strangers in the restoration. We aren't related like me and my sisters' in-laws. No, we're like father and son. In the very best sense of the father-son relationship is who we are. No wonder that John wrote in 1 John three one, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that He would call us children of God. And the full implication won't be known until eternity. But Romans 8 says this, The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. Fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified with Him. We are glorified with Christ. To be a fellow heir means we inherit everything that Jesus inherits. He is the rightful son. We are the adopted son, but we inherit the blessings that Jesus has. That's how great the restoration is. Verse 7, right? He overcomes. We'll inherit these things. They'll just be given to us because of who we are, our standing, and our standing is only because of our faith in Christ. God will be our Father. We will be our Son. Now, again, notice this isn't for everyone. It's for the overcomer, verse 7. As Paul said in Romans 8, it is for the one who suffers with Him, who suffers now for the glory later. Because it says in verse 8, but for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Oh man, we got more. Because we got the New Jerusalem, verse 9. Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bulls full of the seven last plagues, came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. The bride is the church. And he shows him the city. Talked about the New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Verse 10. He carried me away into the Spirit, in the Spirit, to a high and great mountain. And he showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, her stone of a crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates. And the, at the 12 gates were 12 angels. And the names were written on them which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. And there were three gates on the east and three gates on the north and three gates on the south and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones. And on them were the 12 names of the apostles and of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city, its gates, its walls, and the city is laid out as a square. Its length is the greatest width. And he measured the city with a rod 1,500 miles its length and width and height are equal. That's halfway across the United States. And he measured its walls 72 yards according to human measurements, which are angelic measurements in case you're wondering. And the material of the wall was jasper and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardinix, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysospace, the eleventh jacinth. The twelfth amethyst and the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. As wonderful as Garden of Eden was, the city is much better. It shines like a costly jewel. It's clear as crystal. Foundation stones are costly stones. Gates of pearls. Streets of gold. And best yet, verse 11 says, it has the glory of God. And that, that's the big thing, that it has the glory of God. That's what verse 22 is talking about. It has saw no temple in it, for the Lord God the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple, and the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there shall be no night there. Its gates will never be closed and they will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it. But only those whose names are written in the land's book of life. We see perfect harmony here. Harmony with God. Harmony with other nations. So This is a very, this is a very earthly thing. There are nations here. No dangers, the gates are always open, no sin, no need for a place of worship because God is always there, no need for the sun, because the brilliance of God is all that we need. And then we see continuity with the Garden of Eden. Then he showed me chapter twenty two, a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of the street on either side of the river was the tree of life. You've heard that before in Genesis chapter one two chapter two bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. There will be no longer any curse. Genesis 3. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and His bondservants will serve Him. That's their work. Our work is to serve Him. And they will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads face to face with God. And there will no longer be any night and they will have no need of a light, nor a lamp, nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. Ever. Here we see life-giving water, just like in Eden. We see a life-giving tree, just like in Eden. The curse has been removed. God's people will serve Him. God's people will reign forever. All will be restored. And truly, we all will live happily ever after in the fullest sense of any fairy tale that you've ever since, ever, ever read. But this is true. We'll be with God in His place, perfect harmony The garden has now become a city where we dwell eternally as God restores things for us to enjoy. Well, let's pray. Let's just end right there. Father, I feel like I have failed to adequately show the glories of heaven and the new earth. That that we look forward to is a renewed creation. So help us, O oh Lord, to know that and to, to live for that, to live for that day. Father, I pray that we would see that it's only for us who've washed our robes and the blood of Christ that can have right to the tree of life, that can enter into the city. Because outside, O oh Lord, we know that there are the sorcerers and immoral persons and the murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. And yet, God, such were some of us. And yet, by the grace of Christ, we've been cleansed to be able to look forward to this. I pray that You would search our hearts. We would know You and love You and long for this day, O Lord, when we can fully take part in the restoration, which is where we will be forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. God, may the eternal life that Jesus spoke so often of Be real to us that we may embrace it and and love Christ for who He is, for what He's done, for the restoration that we have. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.